Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Breaking news from the White House. The President and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will meet next week to discuss working together on infrastructure. Oh, to be a fly on the wall in that meeting. What does it mean for infrastructure's chances? This as Speaker Pelosi tries to navigate a very difficult divide within the Democratic caucus on whether or not to start articles of impeachment against President Trump. Meanwhile, the president also meeting with Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter. Tweet, tweet, wonder what they talked about. We'll dive into all of that, plus the fallout. Herman Cain, no longer a nominee to the president's Fed board. What does that mean for the economy? We have an all-star panel, Margaret Taleb, Bloomberg News Senior, White House reporter. She's with us for the hour. Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent at The Hill newspaper. Also coming up, an exclusive interview with Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney. She's a Democrat from New York. She was at the Supreme Court earlier today where I interviewed her on the steps of the Supreme Court. Why? Well, there's this question that might be added to the U.S. Census and businesses like Uber and Lyft, they don't like it. We'll dive into that too. But first, oh, to be a CEO these days and called into the Oval Office. Imagine, folks, you're waking up, getting your morning cup of coffee, and you check Twitter. And maybe you're Jack Dorsey and you're the CEO of Twitter. (laughs) And you see President Donald Trump tweeting against you and your company. That's what happened today for Jack Dorsey. Uh, And he ended the day uh, in the Oval Office, and there's this picture that that the White House tweeted out of Jack Dorsey seated directly across from President Trump inside of the Oval Office. Uh, And a lot of staffers were in that room, but to be a fly on the wall for that, uh, Margaret Talib is Bloomberg News senior White House reporter. Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent at The Hill. Thank you both for being here to help us navigate through these headlines today. A lot of meetings coming up. Speaker Pelosi at the White House next week. Shinzo Abe, Prime Minister of Japan, set to be here uh, at the end of the week, but let's start with Jack Dorsey, Margaret. Let's, let's do it. Let's, so, I mean, what do they talk about? So, like, let's just do the 50,000 feet on this first. When you think of President Trump and you think about his most effective, like, method for getting stuff into the bloodstream of America and the world, I don't know about you guys, like, I think of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> He's got... <laughs> 
60 million followers, roughly. Uh, when we all wake up in the morning, those of us who cover the White House and like do it like you wake up, you go to the bathroom, you bring your phone with you. What are you doing? You're looking to see whether Donald Trump has tweeted. I feel like yet. I know you on a much deeper <laughs> level right now. After that, Margaret. <laughs> Live and die by the tweet. So like the, the Trump's central criticism of Twitter, which is that they're not Republican friendly enough. He, they make it hard for his you know, followers to like navigate stuff. He's not acting like someone, honestly, day to day who thinks Trump, who thinks Twitter is any kind of a problem for him. It is his favorite go-to vehicle. And um, do you know, like the old, um, this is almost like a cartoon image of like you go in to see the bo- like you go in to see a boss or you go in for an interview or something, yeah. and like your chair is like the really low chair. It's like <laughs> really low, and the, and the other guy's chair is like really high. This is like the Twitter equivalent of that. Like it takes days to set up a meeting. Like. Trump knew that Dorsey was coming in later that day, so he just decides him to, like, you know, give him a hard time on his own medium hours before he comes in, just to, like, show him who the boss is before he comes into this meeting. And he suggests on Twitter this morning, you know, um, he quotes Maria Bartiromo, he says, the best thing to ever happen to Twitter is Donald Trump, <laughs> quoting himself in the third person. Then he claims that they're very discriminatory um, and they don't treat him well. And then what happens? He comes in, he has this meeting with Dorsey. He suggests that he's going to get Congress to, like, do something to Twitter, somehow regulate them for trying to make them more pro-Republican or something. And then after this meeting with Dorsey, how does he leave it? Great meeting! <laughs> Great meeting! The art of the deal! With at Jack from at Twitter. So many subjects discussed. Looking forward to keeping an open dialogue. Jordan, help. let's dive into, into some of the policy, as Margaret was alluding to, because... Conservatives have been saying that social media platforms are anti-conservative, that they've been bolstering progressive messaging. There's a lot of antitrust issues that I, I think if you if you look down the pipeline that could bubble up, boil over into the next uh, couple of uh, months. Uh, and, and, of course, you've got the, the break up the big tech fervor that is running rampant through through the left right now and even to some extent uh, nonpartisan calls for more regulations on Silicon Valley. So did any of that come up, or was it the president just sort of saying, why did you purge? I love this word, purge. Purge hundreds of thousands of my, of my Twitter followers. Yeah, I mean, first of all, i got to say that it's, it's super interesting that Republicans, the party of you know, free markets, are now all of a sudden very interested in regulating these big tech companies. And this is really something that's come up in the past two years, as President Trump and others have complained about this uh, alleged bias on their platforms. And uh, I don't know if it came up for sure. I'm sure it did, considering what the president was talking about this morning. But uh, look, this meeting could uh, really increase attention on the issue. You know, Ted Cruz has a bill in the Senate that uh, would propose a lot of changes to how these companies are regulated. So, uh, look, I mean, who knows if that gets passed, but at the very least, this is going to increase pressure on these companies to take internal action to address this. And I'm sure that all of their lobby shops and all their comm shops are kicking into high gear to protect against something like getting attacked by the president on Twitter. That's not, not something that any of these companies want to have to deal with. Well, and the, and the 2020 election is going to be like a, a, a test and a pivot point for all the social media companies, whether it has to do with whatever bots or foreign governments are trying to do to interfere to what other one campaign is trying to do to another one. And then uh, just in terms of regulating kind of the the dynamic that happens that gets very heated on social media. Who do you think who do you think has more followers, former President Obama or President Trump? (laughs) 
Oh, it's Obama by twice, like oh, twice wow. as many. Spoken yeah. like two true White yeah. House reporters. Who has more <laughs> followers, Taylor Swift or Donald Trump? I want to go with Taylor Swift too, right? I Taylor. Would, Swift. I would guess that, but yeah. I haven't. Taylor checked. Swift. All right. Uh, fun fact: Switching gears. Herman Cain. He was. Wait, gonna, what was the answer? Is it Taylor Swift? Yeah, T, t- right, Swift. T Swift. T Swift. Uh, wait, wait, who has more, Taylor Swift or Barack Obama? That I don't know, but yeah, I'll find I'll, out. I'll Coming check. up, we'll yeah. check, and, we'll, and, we'll, and our esteemed listeners will know on their commute home who has more. Uh, but switching gears, Herman Cain. This was a diehard supporter of, of, of candidate Donald Trump, someone who does have experience in, in, the, uh, in the Federal Reserve world, uh, a, a political pundit and whatnot. But his nomination to the Federal Reserve Board was tanked. I want to play for you what President Trump had to say about him earlier this month. Here's the president. I've recommended Herman Cain. He's a very uh, a terrific man, a terrific person. He's a friend of mine. Uh, I have recommended him highly for the Fed. So, and now, of course, the, the dismantling of this nomination. And to dive deeper into the specifics, the Senate Banking Committee would have to advance the nomination uh, to the Senate floor for there ultimately be a confirmation vote. Of course, that's Republican-controlled. Senator Mitt Romney, a Republican from Utah, a member of the Senate Banking Committee, withdrawing his support, as did others. I believe Cory Gardner or Kevin Kramer. I apologize. Kevin Kramer, uh, a Republican uh, from North Dakota, uh, withdrawing his support. Another member of that committee and, and really torpedoing the chances of him getting confirmed. What message, Jordan, were they sending? And I know you and your colleague Sylvan Lane uh, over there at the Hill doing a lot of great reporting on this. What did they message were they trying to send by saying to the president, Herman Cain is not going to is not the right fit for the Fed board? I mean, for just straight up there, the message is this guy is not qualified to serve on the Federal Reserve Board and that they're concerned about the president's effort to assert more political control over the Federal Reserve Board and monetary policy. Uh, you know, Cain was somebody who you know, really put his support for Trump out there. And that's not something that they were comfortable with in addition to you know, what they said were his lack of qualifications. So uh, another guy who might receive these same questions is Stephen Moore. The, so, yeah, and I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you run with that. But um, this is a battle the Senate is signaling that they're willing to have with the president. So on Stephen Moore, Margaret, how does Herman Cain impact what's going on with Stephen Moore? Yeah, I mean, I think we've been looking for some clarity from the White House on whether um, – Kane's fate is inevitable for more or not. And as of yesterday, uh, the guidance that we were getting was no, they're moving ahead with, um, uh, you know, the the kind of vetting that happens before a formal nomination happens. But in both of these cases, you're looking at people who are very critical of the Fed, <laughs> who then want to serve on the Fed. And so I think uh, Stephen Warren literally said in an interview that Fed Chair Powell should be fired. Right. And so there, I, would, I would look at both of these nominees on a, on a few different levels. One is, what is their experience? Are they economists? Are they, like, you know, quote, unquote, qualified? Number two is, what is their posture towards the Fed? And I think for a lot of lawmakers, including Republican lawmakers, the Fed is supposed to be independent and sort of beyond the president's political control. So if you have people who are political supporters of a president and want to kill the Fed, and the president has wanted to pen in Jay Powell, and they see this as the way to do it, you're going to have Republican resistance. And then for both men, although their stories are a little bit different, some of the problems with either their comments about women in the past or allegations of harassment, of course, would come back to haunt um, in different ways. Uh, Herman Cain and Stephen Moore, and both nominees are having to contend with that also. All right, coming up, we move to geopolitics. We dive into the Iran fallout with the president's decision not to renew those waivers 
And uh, we also uh, will also hear from Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, Democrat from New York. Uh, earlier today, I, I interviewed her about the divide within the Democratic caucus right now, specifically over whether or not to impeach the president. President Obama, former President Obama, has more Twitter followers than President Trump and Taylor Swift. He's got 106 million. T. Swift has 83.2 million. And the president has 69, or I'm sorry, 59.9 million. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also check us out on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You are listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Breaking news headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal as we speak. The Department of Treasury will provide a decision on whether to release President Trump's tax returns by May 6th. You'll remember they were subpoenaed by the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives to turn over those tax returns of the president. And they've uh, said that they've been consulting with their attorneys and that they would comply with what the law says. Obviously, it looks like Republicans and Democrats have different interpretations of precisely the law. With me for the hour, Margaret Taleb, Bloomberg News senior White House reporter, Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent at The Hill. Margaret, I don't think Secretary Mnuchin's going to say, here you go, Chairwoman Maxine Waters of the House Financial Services Committee and the like. Here are all of President Trump's tax returns. No, nobody thinks that's what's going to happen. Good. It's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it, I guess uh, if, if there's a way to extrapolate what is the meaning of this, uh, it is uh, that at least Mnuchin will answer this question. Uh, and then it will be up to Democrats, as almost everything is these days as we head into the reelection campaign, to decide whether to attempt to litigate when President Trump or his team say no or whether to um, move on or find kind of some other way to deal with it through hearings or, you know, public campaigns or what have you. And um, increasingly, the um, both the president and his team are uh, seeking to test the limits of executive power and the limits of his ability to, um, I know this is a tired cliche, break norms, because some norms are a matter of, are of law and many norms are a matter of custom. And so uh, if the president doesn't says he doesn't think he has to do something and if Mnuchin reflects that in a letter, then the Democrats will need to decide if and how to uh, challenge him in court. And that's you know where we always thought we'd be. We're just a little bit closer to it now. Yeah, Margaret, and this is really, if you take a step back and look at all the other issues that are going on, you have the White House blocking the former security, uh, security clearance chief from testifying. You have them te- uh, telegraphing they're probably going to declare executive privilege on Don McGahn's testimony. So you have a really a multi-front war in this battle with congressional Democrats over oversight. And, and congressional and, Republicans, too, to some extent. Yes. But, but, with the, but with the assumption by the White House that there are fewer of those who want to publicly uh, challenge them. But there are, even so, there are many Republicans, you know, Chuck Ratsley, Mitt Romney, for whom, on a case-by-case basis, there have been um, times when they have sought, uh, even Mitch McConnell, to, uh, to, to curb the president's instincts to kind of go his own way and break the norm. 
Yeah, and like the timing of all this is going to be interesting too because th- there are going to be a lot of core challenges, and those, of course, take time. And are these core challenges being resolved after the 2020 election, before the 2020 election? That's going to be an interesting thing to watch because if you have the you know, president's tax returns dropping in October of 2020, that's, of course – going to be something that could affect the race. And of course, uh, last evening, or early last evening, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi having that conference call with House Democrats. We'll talk about that coming up. Uh, but a lot of divide in terms of how to navigate, even if it is an impeachment, how to go about the various different court cases and whatnot, especially with the backdrop of the 2020 presidential election. Mind you, former Vice President Joe Biden uh, trying now to delaying a day, I guess, but making it official that he's going to make it official. I don't even know where we're at. How do you even characterize this? Thursday, I think he's formally going to announce that he is running for president. Again, coming up, we'll talk much more about the 2020 politics and the divide within the Democratic Party. But uh, I want to stick with with policy, Margaret, because yesterday we interviewed a senior advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Brian Hook. He is the architect behind increasingly Middle Eastern policy, but also, of course, uh, with U.S.-Iran policy. And the decision not to renew waivers of countries being able to do business with Iran and oil was a long time in the making. But many people, uh, critics of the administration and, and both parties, were skeptical that they would be able to actually do this. And yesterday, the administration made good on this promise. I want to play for you a bite from that interview. Here is Brian Hook. If you want to change Iran's calculus for funding all of these proxy wars around the Middle East, you have to get serious about the oil. We've already seen an impact. Uh, Iran is having a harder time meeting their funding commitments for Hezbollah, for Hamas, for their Shia proxies in uh, Syria. And so we want to make it hard for Iran to execute its foreign policy. We're going to continue putting pressure on this regime. We're in the early stages of this. And Iran has a choice. They can either start behaving like a normal nation or they can watch their economy crumble. From inside of the White House's perspective, Margaret, how has the day after this decision been met from your sources and and the folks that you talk to? Well, to hear Brian Hook talk about it, you think it was Mike Pompeo's idea that Mike Pompeo thought this was a great thing. In fact, he did not. The State Department was the one sort of major branch of Trump's administration that uh, pushed back or urged caution on moving ahead with this. This is clearly a victory for John Bolton and for that kind of uh, renegade, uh, let's blow it up side of of President Trump's brain. Um, The the question is, uh, but I think we'll see, uh, there's eight countries who had the waivers, five countries that were using the waiver. And at least for those that are um, some of the closest allied with the U.S., uh, we will see how much they had already weaned off. They had had six months or a year, depending on how you count it, to prepare for this. And uh, the U.S., uh, the administration claims to have secured uh, promises from the Saudis and from the UAE to kind of backfill to make market price oil available as needed. U.S. Um, uh, ability to uh, to produce oil has increased greatly. And so the calculus that once upon a time would have said something like this could trigger a recession. If you talk to Kevin Hassett uh, or Larry Kudlow, some, a couple of the president's top economic advisors, they say that's not really true anymore because the U.S. has the ability to produce so much more of the capacity itself. Um, 
one of the other pieces of this, though, which is uh, the U.S. efforts to oust Maduro and, and help Guaido take over in Venezuela and, and, and thus affecting the Venezuelan oil supply, that effort has gone much slower than I think the U.S. hoped it would. Wow. Uh, if, if, if that were resolved to the U.S.'s satisfaction, it could kind of end the drama over this a little bit faster, get some of that Venezuelan oil back. The drama continues. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Coming up, we're going to talk with Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, Democrat from New York. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Did you hear this? President Trump told his aides to skip the White House Correspondents' Dinner this weekend. That made headlines earlier this afternoon. Meanwhile, there's also Supreme Court census signaling. That's right. The Supreme Court has signaled support today for President Trump's census citizenship question. If you haven't been following this, there was an 80-minute argument on Tuesday that was both technical and combative. And in fact, according to our Bloomberg colleagues... Uh, Greg Storr, who covers all things SCOTUS for us, Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh directed almost all of their questions to lawyers challenging the decision uh, to ask about citizenship. President Trump wants to have a question on the census about uh, whether or not you are a U.S. citizen. Now, that has drawn, obviously, a lot of debate on the immigration issue, but the business community is coming out against adding the question to the census. Uber, Lyft, Levi Strauss, Jeans, they all say that if you add this question, folks will not respond to it or not participate in the census, and therefore it would dramatically uh, impact the data that businesses use uh, to craft their bottom lines and and make eco data. So Carolyn Maloney, she's a congresswoman from New York, Democrat, uh, and she's leading the charge in the Democratic caucus against the president's decision to do this. I caught up with her. Here's what she has to say about why she's against it. Our Constitution requires an accurate count. Our our taxpayers depend on it and and our democracy depends on it. Uh, The numbers that come out of the census are what's used for our representation. It's the basis of our democracy. It's used to distribute over $700 billion uh, annually for needs for people. And, And data, good data. If you don't have good data, then you don't have good plans for the future. Businesses depend on it. Government depends on it. And the whole purpose of the census is to be accurate. So why in the world would you add a question that all the professionals are saying would decrease the accuracy by a minimum of 5.8%, which is roughly 6 million people. We have states that are have less population than 6 million people. So it's important. You are the co-chair of the House Census Caucus. You're also the author of the Census Idea Act, which would remove the citizenship question from the census to prevent last-minute additions in the future. Now, you know this. Republicans are going to say, hey, this is crucial to get uh, this question on there to help in terms of, of security 
issues, as well as to be able to see precisely who's in the country. Your response to those Republicans? Well, we already get the number with the American uh, Community Survey, which is a long form. And we have since 1956 uh, gathered that information on the long form. The purpose of the short form census is to get an accurate count. And that's why it has been so debated. There have been three uh, federal cases uh, that justices came out and said that adding the question was uh, capricious and uh, would lead to an undercount, uh, that it had violated the Constitution and the requirement of enumeration. Uh, There are strong, strong cases. My own city of New York, uh, Tish James, brought a lawsuit uh, that uh, 17 other states joined, and I did an amicus brief with 126 members of Congress. So there have been many, many decisions, and very telling to me was a letter that uh, former heads of the Census Department wrote. Mm. So this was both Republicans and Democrats saying, please don't add this question. It will result in an undercount. It's not just uh, politicians, not just lawmakers and previous officials, but also Uber, also Lyft, Uber. also Levi Strauss. I mean, they, they've really come out uh, against this question being added to the census. They say that it's going to impact and make an economic impact uh, precisely because of the data that is used to calculate a lot of their economic decisions. How would this, if this were added, impact uh, small businesses as well as the businesses that I just mentioned? Well, it, it would impact small businesses in terms of services that you receive. It, it would be your roads, your, your transportation, your infrastructure for hospitals and so forth. But also it's planning. The, the uh, Chamber of Commerce, all of the business organizations for both, both large and small use census data to project how many pizza parlors are needed in a neighborhood? How many Ubers or, or Lyfts are needed? Uh, how many people are going to have to be moving around? They can use these numbers to project what's needed in the future for their business model. That was Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, a Democrat from New York, speaking to me earlier for Bloomberg Television on the steps of the Supreme Court. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Stocks, U.S. stocks closing at, or they rallied to a record on earnings surprises. Did you see this? The U.S. stock gauges closed at record highs on the back of better than forecast earnings while the dollar strengthened and Treasury yields dipped. Uh, This uh, Twitter, did you see this? Twitter closed at its highest since last summer, adding more than $4 billion, $4 billion to its market valuation uh, after reporting a revenue beat for the first quarter. Jack Dorsey, CEO of Twitter, he had a day. Wow, what a day he had. He wakes up in the morning, I'm presuming, and checks Twitter, (laughs) the thing that he created, and you've got President Trump railing against Twitter, saying that, you know, they deleted f- accounts that followed him. He ends the day with a nice message on Twitter from President Trump after what I guess was a pleasant meeting, according to White House officials, uh, between Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, and President Trump. You've got to see this picture that the White House tweeted out uh, of Jack Dorsey sitting across the Oval Office table uh, from President Trump. Just, just a uh, – well – 
Pictures tell a thousand words. Or they tell 280 characters. Or 280 Aww. characters. That was Margaret Tallis. She's a uh, Bloomberg News Senior White House reporter. Jordan Fabian also with us for the hour. He's a White House correspondent uh, at The Hill. Uh, and, you know, we, we just heard from Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, Democrat from New York, about the census. I also asked her about this call last night. Did you guys follow this call with yeah. Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the House Democratic Caucus? I was texting with Democratic staffer aides all morning being like, what happened on this call? Because it's the first time that they've had really an organized type of conversation about whether or not they want to impeach President Trump. And quite frankly, Margaret, Jordan, I'm sure you're hearing the same thing. The White House isn't blinking on this. They're saying if you want to bring articles of impeachment against the president, go for it because it'll take about a year and dominate conversation. Uh, And maybe they are viewing it as a potential backfire. According to Congresswoman Maloney, she's in line with Speaker Pelosi. You know, they want to hear first and foremost, they want an unredacted version of the Mueller report released. They want to hear from Bob Mueller, the special counsel, testifying under oath before Congress, and then they want to go from there. Don't tell that to Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, presidential candidate. She was the first to call for the impeachment of President Trump following the of the Democratic presidential candidates following the release of the Mueller report. She was in a CNN town hall last night in Manchester, New Hampshire. Here's what she had to say about the issue of impeachment. If any other human being in this country had done what's documented in the Mueller report, they would be arrested and put in jail. All right. Margaret Taleb, how is this going to play amongst Democratic circles? Is this something that, I don't know, former Vice President Joe Biden is going to have to take a position on when he finally makes it official on Thursday that he is running for president? He might not have to take a position on Thursday because we believe that his initial announcement is going to be via video. Uh, But like Hillary. Wait. okay, okay. Now finish your thought because I'm getting (laughs) my ADD brain. But go ahead. (laughs) But I I think certainly by Monday when we uh, expect to be his first um, in-person campaign event or at least whenever the first major TV interview is accompanying that rollout. In any case, within the next few days, yes, of course, it's going to be like the first question Joe Biden's asked or one of the first questions uh, that he's asked and he's going to have to answer it. And, um, you know, what you see playing out inside Congress Uh, right now is going to be mirrored to some effect, I think, inside the presidential race, but with a slightly different imperative, because if you're running for Congress, you need to know that you can get reelected in your own district without getting primaried out. If you're running for president, you're in what's going to end up being at least a 20-person, maybe a 22-person um, contest uh, in which the base is going to have an enormous amount of sway, in which uh, Bernie Sanders and his followers are going to have an enormous amount of sway. It's going to pull Democrats further to the left. And what you're seeing Nancy Pelosi doing increasingly, even more so today, is to try to walk the line between um, not coming out with a message that they're going to go straight to impeachment, but allowing that if the process takes them there, that's certainly an avenue that they would keep open. And that's a little bit different from what you heard in the beginning, which is basically Pelosi and other Democrats saying, no, no, I don't know, why are we talking about impeachment? And there's now an acknowledgement that there are enough Democrats or people aligned with the Democratic Party who are kind of like appalled, out for blood, whatever, impeachment is the only answer that will satisfy them, that that the Democrats who are actually trying to govern or thinking ahead toward a general election where they would need to win enough of the middle are and, and, and are looking at the Republican-controlled Senate and thinking the votes are not there to succeed at impeachment. They're not even remotely close so, in the Senate. 
What's but, the what's the magic number in the Senate that they need? <laughs> they need two thirds of the Senate, which is what six to six. It's a there. Yes. There's there are not enough Republic. It's, it's not. It's, it's not, not there. Okay, so it's not happening. So, uh, so there are the the. So basically, what you're looking at is uh, a situation where Pelosi and some of the other folks in Democratic leadership are like, is this if it's going to backfire and it's not going to succeed? We don't want to encourage this talk, but on the other hand, if you shut it down and say and no impeachment, yep. then you're then you're then what you're saying is it's okay, or we're moving the goalposts, or we're afraid of President Trump, and they're, they're trying to find a way to shift this language to say if if the path leads toward impeachment, we shouldn't rule it out, but we shouldn't say Trump we're going there right now. Yeah, yeah and, and just to. To build on that, I mean, Pelosi has a different mandate than the than the 2020 candidates. Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, Elizabeth Don't Warren's main you. job right now is to fire up the Democratic base and get them on her side and, and get donations, et cetera. And the base wants to see impeachment. Nancy Pelosi has dozens of members who were elected in purple to red districts in 2018 who she needs to protect if she wants to keep the House majority in 2020. So that's the problem that she's looking at. So the question is, when does that your progressive energy collide with what Pelosi's goal is. Next and, week. And, yeah, it's going to happen <laughs> No, soon. it's going to happen next week it's when she's meeting soon. with President Trump, as the White and House just said. You, yeah, and I can tell you, Kevin, that the, the White House is, is salivating over this fight. I mean, They're applauding This is it. exactly what they want to see, is Democrats tearing themselves apart over this question of impeachment, because they believe it's an unqualified winner for the president. I'm not sure that that's the case. I think it's messier than a lot of the aides... Uh, seem to believe but there's no doubt that this this uh division among democrats is real and the white house is dangling 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 this carrot of infrastructure which many democrats especially more centrist democrats would like to see happen or even new york democrats we had former congressman joe crawley remember him he lost to aoc i mean he i mean there are so many uh, policy areas that that there are a portion of democrats want to see accomplished on and joe crawley yesterday said you know, something like infrastructure, Speaker Pelosi has kind of warmed up to that idea. That's why she's there. Margaret, I see you shrugging. But you know that next week when President Trump meets with Speaker Pelosi, he's going to say, we can either work together or we you do this impeachment nonsense, then we will not talk at all. He's already said as much. I don't, But I don't think that's the calculus that is going to be abiding Nancy Pelosi's thinking on this. I mean, they talked about this over the St. Patrick's Day mm-hmm. gathering, which was another sort of bipartisan event. And I I see it in a slightly different way. I think Pelosi can't walk away if the president says he wants to talk about a bipartisan approach on infrastructure. But Nancy, like, why would it be in Nancy Pelosi's interest to have a bipartisan compromise that Trump would then run on as an accomplishment? Right. Like, Democrats don't want to and give this. And if there's one this. thing that we've seen, <laughs> it's that I want to get to Biden because we have less than two minutes. But uh, if there's one thing that we've seen, it's that Speaker Pelosi can go back and forth with President Trump quite well, quite, quite well. All right, Joe Biden, I didn't, I didn't realize this. I missed this today. Former Vice President Biden is going to announce in a video, did he learn nothing from the Clinton campaign? <laughs> Jordan, we have less than a minute. I, I, look, I guess not, but I think regardless of how he this initial announcement goes, he's going to be one of the top two candidates in the race. There, it just feels no so controlled. Sure. Joe Biden, his whole pitch is that he's, you know, he's Joe. He can just, you know, talk. I would and, say wait for the when he gets to the Union Hall in Pittsburgh on Monday, and then right. you'll see 
you know, real Joe. Real, yeah, middle class Joe. Joe. Yeah, exactly. Joe. Joe. All right. Yeah. I want to thank uh, our uh, very own Margaret Talov, good friend of mine, good friend of the program. Uh, she is, of course, our Bloomberg News senior White House reporter. Uh, no one knows Washington better than Margaret. Thank you, sir. And I'm very grateful for our friendship. And of course, Jordan Fabian, White House correspondent at the Hill. Check out his reporting at thehill.com. That does it for me. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.